0: Uh, welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you chose to join us this morning, uh, especially if you are a visitor. We're glad that you are uh, checking us out, that you gave up one of your summer uh, mornings, and uh, welcome to summer. Really feels like uh, summer out there. I think it's a couple days ago it was right first day of summer, July 21st. We um, it's kind of weird getting up at 5 a.m. and seeing it bright outside, or, or staying up really late and it's still being bright out. We uh, tell our son who asks us, he's three years old, he asks us, why is it bedtime? Charlie, it's time to go to bed. Why, why is it bedtime? And we used to say, well, it's because the sun's going to bed, so it's time to go to bed. But now, in the summer, that's, that's not the case. That's kind of uh, not really working anymore. But anyway, welcome uh, to the summer. Here at Hiawatha, we're down to one service over the summer. So we have a service at 10 instead of two at, at 9 and 11. And, uh, but we're at one service this, this summer, and so it's been great to have kind of a fuller crowd as uh, lots of people also visit our church as well as go on vacation and things like that. And so, uh, so if you are brand new or if you haven't been here for a while, we're in a sermon series in the book of Genesis. So Genesis is the very first book uh, in the Bible. So if you open up a Bible or turn on an app, it's, it's the very beginning. And so in Genesis, we saw at the beginning of uh, this calendar year when we started it, we see God create the universe and everything in it. He fills the universe. He creates animals and, and planets and uh, humankind. Everything. And then at about uh, chapter 12, things begin to change a little bit. So at the beginning of Genesis, we see God create and, and a bunch of different stories. Genesis 12 kind of zeroes in on this one guy, this guy that Peter was talking about earlier, a guy named Abram. And, and God picks this guy, not because he's special, but picks this, this random guy that lives in a far off land that's worshiping false gods. And God calls this man. He says, leave your country, leave your family, your extended family, your tribe, and come with me to a new land. And so Genesis 12, where the the book of Genesis switches from kind of cosmic or seeing the entire world to now looking at this certain family, it starts off, Genesis 12, God promises Abram, and he says, I will make of you a great nation. So he tells this guy... Think think, offspring. Think, I'm going to give you lots and lots of kids and grandkids and great-great-grandkids, and your descendants will become into a great nation. And he says to Abram, I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So God picks this guy, and he says, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your, you into a great nation so that there's a reason for it. He's not just saying, you won the lottery. You're going to be great. I'm going to make you in a great nation. But he says, so that you will be a blessing. God's promise continues. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God chooses Abram, and he says, through you, through your offspring, through your family, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It's an exciting thing that Abram gets to hear, that God says, I'm going to use you. I'm going to pick you, just just a nobody, in order to bless all the families, all the nations, all the tongues and tribes of the of, of the earth Maybe it's kind of similar to if if a king or if a president or someone really wealthy came to you and said, hey I have, I have a ton of, of money and resources I want to give to your neighborhood or to your school or to your apartment complex or, or wherever you live and I want you to help me figure out wh- where to disperse this money I want to u- use you as an agent to spread about blessing to all those who surround you it's kind of kind of like that. So back in Genesis 12, so a few chapters ago, uh, God made these conditional promises to Abraham. Conditional in that he said, Abram, leave your land, come to this new land I'll give you. So Abram did have to leave his old land. But now God's conditional promises to Abram are now being guaranteed through a covenant. And we're going to see that today. So today's sermon is entitled, The Covenant. So for some of you that might kind of sound like a horror film or if there's any gamers in the room, you may be... Thinking about halo or something, but we'll talk about what, what this word covenant means, and uh, today we're going to look at all of Genesis 15, and as Peter kind of alluded to, there's, there's a scene in our, in our story today in chapter 15 where God takes Abram, takes him out of his tent, you can kind of see it in the bottom there, and uh, he, he has them look up at the sky and says, look at all these stars, and I'm going to make your name great, I'm going to give you as many offspring, as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. So before we jump into our passage today, uh, let's quickly define this word covenant. We're going to see it come up in our passage. It's it's describing what's going to happen in our passage today. God is going to covenant with Abram. So essentially a covenant is a binding agreement or contract between two or more parties. A binding agreement, so, so think like a, a legal contract or something like that, between two or more parties. And today it involves God and Abram. So think about a marriage. Sometimes you call it marriage, it, we call it a marriage covenant. So think kind of about, about that. And, and uh, in a wedding, we, we have two parties that are covenanting, that are promising, that are making this, this binding uh, agreement, this contract between the two, uh, legally, spiritually, relationally. And they give vows. They say, I will love you whether you're rich or whether you're poor. I will choose to love you whether uh, you're sick or whether you're healthy. And so Uh, If if, this gets kind of confusing, kind of just think about like a marriage, um, if you're wondering about this word covenant, or just think uh, a binding agreement between uh, multiple parties. So let me back up just a little bit. So, so far in our story, God God has promised Abram that three things, and we're going to see his promise move into a covenant, or God even more solidifying this promise. So far, God has promised that uh, Abram would become a great nation, So again, that he had lots of offspring and they would have offspring and they would have offspring and his descendants would turn into a great nation. God promised that he'd give his offspring a land, a great land, and lots of stuff that will come with that. We'll talk about that later today. And that blessing would flow through Abraham and through his descendants out into the world. So kind of keep that in uh, your mind as we begin to read our passage today. So, so far in this story some of those things have happened. So, so far, actually, right when our story starts, uh, they are in the land, which is a good thing. A couple of chapters ago, they actually weren't in the land. That was a big problem. Now they are back in the land. That's not the big problem. But in, in today's passage, we, we are reminded that they don't have kids yet. And so kind of that first thing and that third thing haven't happened yet. And Abram, we're going to see, and I'm sure Sarai as well, Are thinking and asking God, what's going on? How can we become a great nation if we have no kids or grandkids? And how can blessing flow to to every tribe, tongue, and nation in the world if we're not a great nation, if we don't have any kids? So the big problem today in this story is that they don't have any children. It's kind of a side note, just to be clear, because I know uh, a lot of people, my my wife and I included at times in our lives, have struggled with infertility, wanting kids but not being able to have them. So, just to be clear, in our story here, having children is is related to this covenant that God is giving them, as well as lots of cultural things that happen in the ancient world. There's no social security, so when you got old, you needed a family to take care of you. There was no police, so you needed your your extended family, your tribe, to, to kind of help you out and protect you, as well as lots of other benefits, continuing on the family name, etc. But, just to be clear, if you don't have kids or if you want to have kids and you're not able to, it's not, we're not saying here that that is your ultimate problem or that you're uh, not being loved by God or that he's, he's judging you or anything like that. Actually, we're going to see later on in this story that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of this covenant, of this promise. And so what literal children point to, what they're an example or a whisper of, that is that is given to all followers of Christ. And so if you don't have kids, or if you don't have kids throughout your life, even later on in life, just know that the, in the very fullest and realest way, what Abram and Sarah, Sarai are longing for right now in this passage, that is yours in Christ Jesus. But in our passage today, it specifically has to do with uh, this, this problem, this promise, uh, not being able to be fulfilled because they don't have children yet. So let me pray, and then we're going to jump into... Genesis 15. God, we thank you for this passage. We, we thank you that it lets us see some of your character, it lets us see who you are, it lets us get a, a glimpse into your salvation, God. And we pray uh, that you would enlighten us this morning, that you would help us to understand uh, this, this event, this covenant, this, this agreement that happened uh, almost 4,000 years ago and how it, it shows us who you are and it explains our, our, our situation And it actually is relevant to us and to us as a church here today. So we pray your spirit would be here and speak to us in your name. Amen. All right, uh, Genesis 15, it's going to be up here on the screen. You can follow along in the Pew Bible if you like. We haven't said this in a while, but uh, if you don't have a Bible or you'd like a Bible, feel free to take one of those Pew Bibles. Those are uh, there for you on Sunday mornings. But if you'd like one, feel free to just bring it home. We'd love for you to have that be a gift from us. Right, Genesis 15, starting in verse 1, starts out by saying, after these things. So if you are here last week, these things that are being uh, referenced to, so right before this, uh, Abram's nephew, Lot, and Lot's family, Lot's not the, the brightest uh, bulb, he does some really foolish things. Uh, a bunch of kings come and kind of uh, ransack the area that he's living in. He's living by the city of Sodom, and they kind of take him and his family, and his possessions, they take them away. So Abram has to uh, get a bunch of his fighting men. He has like 300, 300 fighting men within his household. And Abram takes them and goes and uh, rescues Lot and his family, rescues his nephew and his family, brings them back. So there's that that just happened. And then, and then right when they come back, the king of Sodom, the king of of the city that's that's next to, to Lot and his family, he kind of comes out. So instead of actually protecting his city and protecting his people, the king of Sodom kind of ran away and hid. But then when Abram comes back with all the spoils, with all the the, the, the former prisoners and brings them back, the king of Sodom, Sodom kind of comes out and he goes, oh, well, thank you for doing this, for, for rescuing my people here. You can kind of have some of the spoils of war and, and some of the wealth for essentially doing the job that he was supposed to do. But Abram says, no, I... I'm not going to take any of that. I just want uh, my, my family, Lot, to, to be rescued. And I don't want you to say, you're the reason that I became wealthy. You're the reason that I am pros- prosperous. But rather, I believe Abram is, is remembering the covenant, remembering that God is going to be the one that's going to rescue and protect and provide and, and make him into a great nation. So that's what just happened. So, so have that be the setting as we move into Genesis 15. So after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So God starts out by saying, fear not. So, so often when God speaks to people in the Bible, they're terrified, right? So first of all, he's telling him not to fear. And then secondly, in light of the, the setting or the situation that they find themselves in, he reminds him, Abram, I'm your shield. It's not you and, and your, your uh, brilliant business skills or you and your, your fighting men or you, and, you being a great warrior, a military mind that's going to rescue you or that just help you defeat these kings and and rescue Lot and his family, but I am the one who has done it. I am your shield, Abram. I'm the one who has protected you throughout this time, and I'm the one that's going to continue to protect you. And he reminds him, your your reward is going to be great. Just in the face of Abram turning down a really big reward. He just told the king of Sodom, no, I don't want all your wealth. I don't want all these spoils of war, Because, because then you're going to say that you're the reason that I became wealthy. So God reminds him, I am going to be the one. Remember the promise that I gave you back in back in Genesis 12 that I'm going to make you into a great nation and that your reward, your blessing, your prosperity is going to come through me. Verse 2, but Abram said, "Oh Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus." And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So Abram responds to God, and he says, yeah, but God, you you say you're going to give me great reward. You say you're going to make me into a great nation, but I still don't have a kid. Believe me, my wife, Sarah, and I, we've tried. We've tried to do our part. Actually, for decades, we've tried and tried to get an offspring, to get a child. And then he he goes on to the blame game. He says, but you, God, you have not given us a child. And so he blames him. So the situation that they find themselves in, we don't know exactly who this Eleazar guy is, but he's a member of Abram's household, not a, not a child, not a, not a real biological descendant, but probably a servant or something who, who would be Abram's legal heir. And Abram is reminding God, you promised me children, but, but I don't even have any children. And my heir, who's going to get all of, all of my wealth, all of my possessions, is just this guy named Eleazar, who's, who's not even my biological Son. Verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir; your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heavens and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, Show. So shall your offspring be. As I was reading this, I kind of thought of of a child who who, because of his circumstances and or emotions. Is kind of just freaking out. Is like not believing reality, but rather thinking it's the end of the world. Or, um, I, my wife and I have a three and a half year old son, and this happens often in our household. Or it also made me think there's, there's this blog, this guy named Greg Pembroke. He, uh, he has a kid as well, and he, it's a blog that kind of turned into a book, and he takes a picture of his kid just melting down, just freaking out, and then he kind of writes a caption about what made his kid freak out, or what made his kid's world end. So, so here's just an example of it. So this kid is, uh, reasons my kid is crying. This is the 46th one he's done. He said, I broke his cheese in half. So I kind of see Abraham kind of similarly in a situation like this. And like a loving parent kind of steps in and says, oh, I know it's tough. I know it seems like the world is ending. But let me, just, let me just remind you I love you. Let me just remind you of reality. Let me just remind you of who I am and the promises that I have given you so I kind of see God doing that with Abram, kind of sitting down, kind of looking him in the eye, and say, "Okay, I, I know it seems like I've forgotten you, and I know it seems like you're not going to have an offspring, but let me remind you of what I've told you, and let me show you what I'm about to do." And he kind of puts his arm around Abram and kind of leads him out of the tent into the night. If you've ever, uh, I grew up in northern Minnesota, small town. If you've ever seen the night sky, where uh, where you're far away from any other light. The, the amount of stars you're able to see is just, is just amazing. It'll, it'll blow your mind. And so, so Abram, kind of, God kind of puts his arm around Abram, takes him out, and points to the night sky. And he says, look at, look at these stars. Look at these stars. Count them, if you can. You can't, but just try to count them. That's how many kids I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you an offspring, and I told you um, that offspring is going to expand. You're going to become a great nation. Look, look at this picture and I think God, in this moment, kind of talks Abram off the ledge. And he, he remembers God's character. He remembers God's promise. And he's no longer freaking out because his, his cheese got broken into. And the very next verse that comes right after this, right after God calmly speaks to him, gives him this, this picture of the, the, the stars in the sky and says, remember my promise to you. I'm going to give you this many offspring. The next verse says, and Abram believed the Lord. So it goes from doubt and blaming and kind of having a, a meltdown to believing the Lord. And look at what it says here. And he, speaking of the Lord, and the Lord counted to him, counted to, to Abram as righteous. Notice what it says there. It doesn't say God called Abram righteous or God uh, called him holy or justified. It doesn't say he did that because Abram was very brave and rescued Lot. It doesn't say he was righteous because he, he, he turned down uh, the king of Sodom's reward. But it says he was righteous because he believed the Lord. Because he had faith in what God said. Because he trusted him. We're going to come back to that uh, a bunch later on. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out, of, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, To possess. Look what God's doing there here. He's he's talking to Abram and he's reminding Abram of who he is. He's identifying identifying himself with an action that he has done. He's saying, this is who I am. He could say, I am the Lord, the creator of the universe, or the creator of those stars you just look at. And that would have been right. But instead, he chooses here to say, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and give you a land that you will possess. He says, I am a God who rescued you. I plucked you out of uh, your your homeland, your your city, your family, where you're worshiping false gods and you're on a road that was leading to, to a road that was leading to hell. I rescued you out of that. I saved you out of that. This kind of reminds us of a little bit later on in the story, God does make Abram and his descendants into a great nation. They become the nation of Israel. They're imprisoned by Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. God rescues them out of Egypt. And then after that, God God says again and again and again, remember, who am I? I am the Lord who rescued you out of Egypt. So God again and again and again wants his people to know that he is a God who rescues. He is a God who brings salvation. He's a God who redeems people, who gives freedom to those who were once imprisoned. He's a God that takes us out of worshiping false gods, who, who takes us off of the road that is leading to hell, and he brings salvation. Verse 8, But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it, possess this land? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other but he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So God tells Abram to initiate this covenant. So we don't quite know what's going on yet, but it'll be described as a covenant in just a bit. He says, get these animals, sacrifice them, cut them in half, and put half the goat on this side, the ram on this side, half on the other side. So there's kind of two rows of bloody, dead animals. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possession. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So here in the promise, God, actually, that, that uh, instance I just told you about is going to happen. God prophesies or, or tells Abram, your, your descendants are actually going to leave this land eventually. They're going to be sojourners. They're gonna, We know now that they're going to end up in Egypt. They're going to become slaves to Pharaoh, and for 400 years they're going to be under the yoke and the oppression of Pharaoh, but God is going to rescue them out of that. God is going to send plagues, 10 different plagues, and, uh, to, to, to hurt the Egyptian people in order to rescue his people. And even though the Egyptian people wanted, especially by the end, wanted God's people to leave because of all these plagues that were afflicting them, Pharaoh hardened his heart. So finally, by the very end, after the 10th plague, uh, Pharaoh said, get out of here. And so as the people, as Israel, as, as God's people were leaving Egypt, uh, the Egyptians were giving the Israelites all their wealth, saying, here, take our wealth, take our stuff, get out of here and never come back. So that's what God is uh, here uh, talking about in these verses. Verse 17, When the sun had gone down and, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the, Ken, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Prezites, Perez, the Rephame, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All right, that was Genesis 15. Pretty pretty, re- pretty weird, pretty strange, right? Even if you read that passage before, you're probably still thinking, What? Is going on. It's kind of this, this weird interaction. God tells them to make a sacrifice. It's really bloody. They cut these animals in half. They kind of make two, two rows. God puts Abram to sleep. And then there's like these two kind of floating things that are flaming and, and smoking going through. So quite a strange story. Yet this is a really pivotal one, not only in Abram's life, not only in the whole book of Genesis, but in of all of the whole Bible, in all of salvation history. God here, through this covenant, he solidifies the promise that he's going to bless Abram and his offspring, and that through this blessing and through his offspring, it will flow to to all the nations of the earth. So we're going to look at, there's a lot here in this passage, but we're going to look at three things this morning, uh, especially in light of the rest of the Bible. So we're just reading the first couple chapters in a book that is very, very long. So we're going to Also look at what what does the rest of the Bible say as it's looking back to this really important event in history. First thing I want us to see is, in this covenant, look and see that God, he is the active party. right? Except for Abram whining, complaining, doubting God, blaming God, and then cutting up a few animals, God is the active party, especially once the covenant actually starts. That's what we should be seeing, seeing here in narrative form. So we see it in in, in word form uh, all over the Bible, especially the New Testament. Salvation comes by grace alone, not by works. We see this in narrative form: grace, not works. We see God making promises to Abram and to his descendants through that. And what does Abram do? All he does is just receive. He's just he's just sitting there on the sideline, listening to God make promises to him. This is not a one side promising one thing, one side promising the other. It's not a 50-50 type thing. You see when uh, this actually happens, who's going through the sacrifices? Who's walking down there? It's God himself. He's the only one moving through the sacrifices, not Abram. So unlike a wedding that kind of has two sets of vows, two people saying to each other, I promise to do this, I will do this, no matter what I'm going to be by your side, two people saying that, Instead of that, we see just one party. We see God looking at Abram and saying, I will do this. I promise to do this. This is a binding agreement. Most people think what's going on with this type of covenant is the person walking down the middle of these sacrifices saying, may I be like these, bloody, cut in half, dead, rotting pieces of meat if I don't live up to my promise. So what's God doing here? He's saying in a very binding, legal Covenantal type way, I'm gonna do this promise. I, I promised you, to, promised it to you before, and I'm gonna, I'm going to do it. May I be like this? These these dead, uh, bloody sacrifices. If I don't live up to my end, and where is Abram in all this? Is he also walking down the middle, saying, God, I promise to do something too. May I be like this if I don't keep your commandments or follow you or or stop uh, whining and having these little temper tantrums when I. Don't get my way. No. Not only only is Abram not just told, hey, I'm going to do my thing now. Abram, you just kind of stand to the side and watch what I do. Not only is he just watching from the sidelines, sitting down. He's asleep, doing absolutely nothing. He's just sitting on the sidelines, asleep. Nothing he can boast about. He can't go back to his wife or tell his children later on, hey, let me tell you about this covenant I did with God. So God did this really cool thing and then I kind of followed behind God and said, me too, God. You you say that you're going to do this and may you die this horrible death if you don't do it. I want to do that too. I'm going to do that too. But no, he can't say that. He can't boast about that because he's not only not doing anything, he's literally lying down asleep. So just like with our salvation, we can do nothing except just sit back and receive. Look at the promise God has given to us and receive it. Secondly, I want us to see this, this covenant is different than some other covenants, different than the biggest covenant we see in the Bible, which, which is later called the law. And so God makes another covenant with, with Abraham's uh, descendants, the people of Israel. So after God saves them out of Egypt, he brings them to a mountain and, and he gives them the law, the Ten Commandments and hundreds of other laws. That's also called the covenant or called the old covenant but I want us to see how this covenant is a lot different than that covenant. This covenant is a covenant of grace. I'll kind of just unpack that, but we're gonna look at this even more. This is a covenant of grace, not of works. Unlike other covenants that were happening at this time, or unlike other covenant, or like unlike the the, the law or the old covenant, it's gonna happen at Mount Sinai with Moses and the people of Israel, that covenant says, do this or else. That covenant says, if you keep my commandments, if you follow my rules, if you do the sacrificial system, if you, if you do these ceremonial laws, then I will be your God. Then I will protect you. Then you will live in the land. You will have prosperity. But if you don't, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be punishment. There's going to be exile. There's going to be banishment. But instead, in this covenant, we don't see that at all. There's no do this or else. Rather, this covenant is just God promising, just God saying, I am going to do it, and I'm going to do it for you. It doesn't matter at all. So contrasted to the law, this covenant is given by grace, and it shows God's generosity, God's kindness, of picking just a nobody like Abram and making these amazing promises to him. So the law, the the old covenant, its rules. So think about maybe like the law more like... uh, like a parent giving their kid rules. So something like, if you hit your sister, then you're going to have to take a time out. Or something like, uh, if you do your chores, then you'll get an allowance. Okay, that's the law. That's, that's the old covenant. That's different than this covenant. Whereas this covenant says, I'm your dad. I'm your parent. And I'm going to love you no matter what. You don't have to do anything. I will never give up on you. I will always love you. I will protect you. I promise I will provide for you and I will love you forever. See the two different covenants? The covenant we see here today is that. It's God promising, I will be your God, I will be your heavenly Father, and I will do all this for you, period. Not if you do more, not if you do X, Y, or Z, but rather that is what I'm going to do for you. And then remember remember what verse 6 said. I said we're going to get back to this. Verse 6 said, And he, speaking of Abram, and Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So the law says, do X, Y, and Z in order to be righteous. Keep the Ten Commandments, do the Sabbath, do these washing laws, stay in the land, and then I will be your God. Then you will receive the blessing. Then you will have right relationship with God. Then you will be made righteous. rather, verse 6 says, and this covenant shows that faith. It's not works. It's not even following the law, following the rules that God gave them. But rather, it's faith. It's trusting in God that brings righteousness. It's trusting in God that brings a right relationship between mankind and God. Between us and God. Between Abram and God. And finally, the third thing we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see that in the gospel... So in Jesus, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, in the gospel, all of these covenant promises, land, offspring, and blessing, all these promises are given to Jesus. So it's going to get maybe a little bit confusing here, so so bear with me for about three minutes, and hopefully it'll be clear. So in the gospel, because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, all of these covenant promises are going to be given to Jesus and then us as the church in extension. We'll, we'll get there in just a second. So Jesus is actually Abram's ultimate offspring. He literally was a, a biological descendant of Abram. He was, he was a Jewish person. But he's also the ultimate offspring whom through the, the entire world would be blessed. It wasn't just Jewish people throughout history that have made all the nations in the world blessed, but rather through Jesus, all of the nations of the world Will be blessed and have been blessed. In the New Testament, so this is a book written after Jesus' death and resurrection. They look back at, at, at the cross, they look back at the gospel, and then way back at what happened in Genesis 15. And they, they, they put those together and they understand what, what really is going on or ultimately going on. And they write, now the promises were made to Abram and to his offspring. Right? So we just talked about that. Abram and then also Abram's offspring, they're going to receive these promises, these blessings. Okay, great nation, land, and other people that can be, be a blessing from them. But notice, Galatians is saying, notice here that it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. So he's quoting Genesis right here, who is Christ. So he's saying, notice, even though we kind of read it as through your offspring, that could kind of be plural, but the, the author of Galatians is saying, look at here, it's not offsprings plural, Ultimately, this, this promise was not that every Jewish person, if you were around a Jewish person, you just kind of got blessed. Like there was some like, magic through the literal biological descendants. But he says, ultimately, what's going on here is that the world was going to be blessed through offspring singular, one offspring. And that offspring it says right here, who is Christ? The ultimate offspring of Abram. So like I said here, in the gospel, all of these covenant promises are given to Jesus and now in turn are also received and given to us as the church. Because the church, the followers of Jesus are called, Jesus says that this is my body. He says the church is my body. So if, if he receives all of these blessings, it would make sense that also his church would receive his blessings as well. His physical presence, which is now here on earth. So again, still kind of confusing maybe. So here's a, Maybe a little visual that might help. So God promised blessing to Abraham, and then through Abraham, it was going to go into his offspring, and Jesus being the ultimate offspring. So a recipient of that blessing. And then those of us who are in Christ, or we're going to see also uh, those who have faith are also true descendants of Abraham. We are also the church as an extension of Christ are going to receive these same three blessings, land, offspring, and be a blessing to Others. So now let's look again at Galatians. Really great passage. Galatians 3 unpacks this in very big detail if you want to read the, the whole thing. But look how the New Testament talks about those who have faith in Christ. Okay? Look at the verbiage, the, the words that they use to describe people who have faith in Christ. They call them Abram's true descendants. Even those, even even over those who are biologically. Abram's descendants, even over those who are true Jewish people, who are true Israelites. Those who are of faith are Abram's true descendants. So today, if you have faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are literally and truly and fully a descendant of Abraham. Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9, speak about that. Just as Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. We just read that, so he's quoting Genesis fifteen, six. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Abraham. Just to be clear, we say this every week. Abram later later becomes Abraham. So same person. Verse 8. In the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Ton to say there. But let's specifically look at that that last verse there. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Abraham received blessing from God by faith. And those of us who, who put trust in the same God also get the same blessing. A little bit later on in Galatians, he makes it even more clear. Starting in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So the, the, the New Testament is arguing here, it doesn't matter anymore if you are ethnic Israel, if you are ethnic Hebrew, ethnic Jew. It doesn't matter if you are a a, a literal descendant of Abraham. What matters now is if you are in Christ, and if you are in Christ by faith, you are Abraham's true offspring, heirs according to the promise. So just like Abraham's offspring was able to receive all of these blessings, they're heirs of it, heirs to this promise. Us too, if we are in Christ, are that as well. So now let's look at those three things. As we close, land, uh, offspring, and blessing. The, the three promises, three main ones that are given to Abram and his offspring and see how those are given to Christ and then to the church in extension. First one, let's look at land. So when we think of land, first of all, when, when Abram promised God, when God promised Abram land, we should think, think of some of these other things as well. Protection. He said, "I'm. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse." So, w- within this whole idea that Abram is going to give, God is going to give Abram and his descendants land. There's this idea of protection that God's going to protect them. They're going to have security within the land. Also, provision. He's going to give them a land later described as flowing with milk and honey. Land that has lots of resources, lots of food, lots of trees, animals, water. So, think of protection, provision, and prosperity. So, with with God as their God, they're going to flourish. They're going to become a great nation. So with land, we see throughout the, start, throughout this, the story so far, and you know especially uh, 12 through 15. actually, we saw it in uh, the Garden of Eden as well. But we're going to see this more and more throughout Genesis, throughout the whole Old Testament and even into the New Testament, even into the, the first four books of the New Testament. Uh, being in the land is really important when god's people are in the land there's a blessing when god's people are in the land they're close to god but when god's people are outside of the land it's it's either a sign of judgment or it's just a big big problem we've seen this earlier with with abram going to egypt we're going to see it again in this story and even into the new testament first four books of the new testament being in the land is important so matthew one of jesus's disciples that writes about jesus he, he very carefully wants people to know that Jesus' birth, his baptism, his temptation, his ministry, and his miracles, they all happened in the land. Porterbrook in their uh, course on union with Christ, says, Jesus begins his ministry in the land, and it becomes once again a land of blessing. The dead are raised, the hungry are fed, the sick are healed, sins are forgiven. The land was now at last. The place that it was meant to be, but then something strange happens. So, so Genesis all the way, over half the Bible, all the way through the Book of John. In the land is good. In the land means God's blessing. In the land means it's it's the way it's supposed to be. But then something happens in the next book of the Bible, in the Book of Acts. Persecution arises against the church. So Jesus is uh, raised from the dead. He's ascended. He's back with God the Father in heaven. Persecution arises. And the church gets scattered. And God uses that. That's actually not a problem anymore. So no longer, I think it's Acts like 8 all the way to the end of the Bible, no longer is there a focus on being in the land, but rather what in the land was always pointing to. What in the land symbolized and foreshadowed was being in Christ. Same type of phrase. Being in the land is a blessing in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, after Christ Now being in Christ is the fulfillment of that. Even better than that. So from then on, from when the church gets scattered, being in the land is no longer a blessing. It's actually not even referenced anymore. Not because God's covenant stopped right there. Not because God's promise said, oh, didn't see that coming, that the Romans would persecute and my people couldn't be in the land anymore. Not at all what happened, but rather... It had been replaced, as Porter, again, uh, same course, Union with Christ says, it had been replaced by that to which it pointed. In the land had been replaced into, uh, by that which it pointed, namely Jesus. Being in Christ is the refrain echoing throughout the pages of the New Testament. Being in the land was just a hint, was just an indication, was just a promise of God's ultimate blessing, which would later come in Christ. So all the blessings that came out of this covenant that we read about are now given to Jesus, who is the ultimate offspring of Abram, who is the ultimate land for those who believe in him. We no longer need to be in the land, but rather we need to be in Christ. We need to be in Jesus. Jesus, what the, what the land physically and symbolically meant to Abram and his descendants. Christ, he is our ultimate protection. He's our eternal protection. He is our ultimate provision. He is our ultimate prosperity. He is our ultimate treasure, our inheritance, our portion. Ephesians 1, 1 Peter 1, we're not going to look there, but they talk about Jesus being our portion, Jesus being our our treasure. See that in the book of John as well with interaction between Jesus and, and Martha and Mary. Same language. And the New Testament says, Jesus, you are our land. You are what we are inheriting. You are our portion. You're even better than Israel, the the actual land. So that's why Christians don't make pilgrimages back to Jerusalem or back to Bethlehem or back to Israel. We don't need to because we have something even better than that. We have what that was, was pointing to in just a shadowy way. We have the reality. And finally, the, the culmination of us being in Christ is receiving an eternal and a perfected land with Christ living at the center. The new heavens and the new earth described at the very end of the Bible is our final physical and eternal destination. It is our home and it's the place where we ultimately belong. We will live, we will live alongside God in complete protection, provision, Prosperity. Okay, first thing was land. Second thing, uh, offspring. the uh, the gospel will expand. That's promised to the church. Promised in the New Testament, the gospel will expand. Expand. The church will grow, and more and more and more will receive Christ. So, converting, putting, putting, uh, repenting of your sin and putting your trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus calls that in the New Testament, being born again. That same type of language having to do with offspring, right? You're born into a new spiritual family. In the Old Testament, uh, in Isaiah, God speaking, he says, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. This shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So later on in the Bible, actually Jesus is called the word of God. So God says, when my word goes forth, it will accomplish what I set it out to do. I promise it will do it. And ultimately, Jesus's ultimate or God's ultimate word is his son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' ministry, he tells his disciples, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So Jesus promises to his disciples that they will do even greater works than he did, physical works. Miracles, physical healings, things like that. But they will do even greater things, which is spread the gospel. Give people spiritual healings. Give people eternal life, not just raise them from the physical dead. Jesus promises that that will happen. So just like in God's covenant with Abram, God promises that it will happen and that he will be the one to do it. Jesus, again in Matthew, he writes... On this rock, so essentially he's saying, on, on this gospel, I will build my church. Not the elders of Hiawatha, not evangelists, not global missionaries, but Jesus will build his church. And that's how we can guarantee that the church is going to grow. Not necessarily we'll have more people in these pews every single Sunday from now until 10 years or whatever. But God, Jesus promises that he will build his church. He continues on, he says... I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Sometimes in the church we think that that what the church is supposed to be or what God's doing is is this world is going crazy, this world is full of evil and sin, and what God's kind of done is he's kind of like in the church giving us this little like uh, protective orb, like a little force field. So you kind of come in this little force field and just huddle around as the world just goes to hell. We we're protected, and we just wait till Jesus comes back and fixes everything. But look at what Jesus says. He says, "I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it." So think about think about hell. Kind of hard to see here, but here's a some some picture of some gates. Think about what gates do. Are they offensive or defensive? They're defensive, right? They're keeping people out. So what Jesus is saying. I'm going to build my church in the gates of hell. Hell, this place that is imprisoning and trapping people in their sin and in death. Jesus says, my church, I'm going to build it. And these gates will not be able to hold the church back. My church is going to prevail against these gates. We're going to, my church is going to knock down these gates and rescue people out of the imprisonment of hell. He says, my church has the mission destroying these gates and depopulating hell and then he says i will give you the keys to heaven he's saying through this gospel through preaching the gospel through my church now this place is going to receive less population and you're going to you have the keys to open the kingdom of heaven people are going to move from death to life jesus promises that his gospel will expand that people will be born again that the church will have spiritual offspring and then finally, blessing. Through the gospel and the church in extension, all tribes, tongues, and nations will be blessed. Salvation comes through Christ, not just to Jews, not just to Abram's descendants, but to all the nations. Look, look at how the Bible kind of goes. Like I just took three kind of important verses, one, one in the beginning we just read, one in the middle, one in the end. Look at this. It starts with Genesis 12, we saw God saying, Abram, I will bless you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? Later on, Jesus comes into the scene. Look at, this, look at the language he uses. So he's risen from the, from the dead. He talks to his church, talks to his disciples, and he says, do this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. No longer is, is being ethnically Jew important anymore. Now the gospel is going to all nations. This Genesis 12 is being fulfilled through the gospel. It's being fulfilled in the church. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And at the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, look at how it describes. We kind of get a scene of what's going on at the very end. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, showing that their sins have been forgiven, showing that they are saved, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we see that through Jesus, through the gospel, through the church now, this blessing that was promised to Abram is now offered and now will go throughout all tribes, tongues, and nations to bring salvation. I was thinking about, thinking about this this morning. Uh, so some of Jesus' biggest opponents were religious people who said, hey, I am from the line of Abram. I, I literally am a Jew. And so just because I'm a Jew, I'm in. And I, I, I don't care about Gentiles. I don't care about non-Jews, about Samaritans. And and Jesus argued with them saying, just because you're biologically from from Abram's seed doesn't really matter. Abram was justified by faith, not because he was Jewish. And so Jesus has lots of conflict with them. And I think a way that they can play out here at Hiawatha, here in the American church, is similarly, people can say, just because my family is Christian, just because I'm a descendant of Abraham, just because my family is a Christian, well, then I must be a Christian. Or just because I go to church, I must be a Christian. And that's not what the Bible says. We get to be a part of the family of God, not because our biological family brings us to church, not because our parents or our siblings or our grandparents or aunts and uncles have faith, but we enter the true family of God just like Abram did. We enter it through faith, not through genetics, not through bloodlines, but through faith. All right, three things as we leave here this morning. First one is, I want you to see and remember, maybe see for the first time or remember for the millionth time, God's character in how he covenanted with Abram. He was gracious. He's actively loving us. And he's not saying, do this or else. He's not saying, if you climb the ladder, if you do all the commandments, then I will love you. But he's saying, I promise to love you. You are my child. You put your faith in my son. I'm going to adopt you as my child and I'll love you forever, no matter what. See that in God's covenant with Abram. Different than, the, than the, the law. Different than the old covenant. But see God's character and his salvation and how he relates to us in this covenant. This covenant that we saw today, it's initiated by God. It's sovereignly administered by him and it is kept by him, independent of our own actions. And it's the same with our salvation. Secondly, just like Abram was made righteous, he had right standing with God, he had his sins forgiven, not because he was good, not because he did great things, but by faith. Just like Abram, be justified today by faith. Be made righteous by faith. Put your faith in, in Jesus Christ, not in what you' have done, not in all the good deeds that you've done, not in your ethnic lineage, not in your, your extended family or your parents', great Christianity that you've seen, but by faith. Become a true offspring of Abram through trust in Jesus Christ. Romans four says, "For Abram was justif-, sorry, for if Abram was justified by works, he'd have something to boast about, but not before God." For what does the scripture say? Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And finally and thirdly, as we are in Christ, today if you are a Christian here today, If you're not, number two is for you. If you are today a Christian here, number three, as we are in Christ, let us with confidence, let us with confidence storm the gates of hell knowing that God promises that the gospel will bring blessing and salvation. Let us not live in fear thinking that God can't do it or maybe he won't or that the enemy is, is more powerful Rather, let's pray. Let's pray that his kingdom would come, that more people would meet him. Let's pray regularly for specific names of those who don't know Jesus in our lives. Let's move towards people. Rather than hiding a little force field and and just waiting till Jesus comes back, let us believe Matthew 16, 18, that he's the one that's going to build his church, and he's sending his church out to storm the gates of hell, to knock them over, to rescue prisoners who are enchained in hell, and bring them to himself, and let us have confidence. Both have confidence that God promises that he will do it, that God promises that salvation will come, that his church will grow, that the gospel will expand. Also have confidence that it's not about you, that you can't screw it up, that you move tor- towards your co-worker, your neighbor, telling them about Jesus, about the gospel, sharing your faith, that even if you mess up, even if you have a horrible argument, even if you stumble over your words, even if you're not a perfect example, that can't screw it up. Have confidence that God is the one that saves, and it's not your great argument, not your perfect life. So both of those. It's not about you, so have confidence, and know that it is about God, that Jesus will build his church. Have confidence in that as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for...